And a very good evening to you. How are you today? Are you well? It's uh, Thursday, March 10th, 2022. It's me, Richie Allen, live from BBG Towers in Salford, with, I think, another interesting show for you. Thanks for joining me. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. A little bit later on at this hour, in 35 minutes or so, Tony Gosling will be with me, former BBC journalist, these days presenting The Politics Show, or not The Politics Show, Uh, From Bristol every Friday at 5 o'clock. He's a great guy with some very interesting positions and analysis of what's happening in general, not just in Ukraine, but in general. Tony joins me. That'll be an extended chat. If you want to join in on that, I will be especially looking at your comments as they come in to my website, richieallen.co.uk. So do comment. Feel free to have a say and I'll read them and put some of your points to Tony. It's just after five o'clock here in Salford in the northwest. It's been a beautiful afternoon. It's been lovely. Spring, dare I say it, it's the ultimate radio cliche. Spring has sprung. There you are, I said it. I say it every year. It is, it's glorious here today. And let's hope it continues. Let's hope it continues. Are you fed up with the coverage of Ukraine yet? And again, like I said yesterday, I don't mean to imply that you couldn't care less about the people suffering that, putting up with it, but just the, the the overwhelming. It's morning, noon, night, it's relentless. It's every minute of every hour of television and radio news. There's nothing else. We joked, didn't we, last week, the week before, about COVID disappearing from news broadcasting. But it's, it's, it's hilarious. There is nothing else going on. Nothing. The occasional little, and, and, and Prince Charles will be giving seven million quid to Andrew to pay off Virginia Dufresne. Put back to Ukraine. That's how it's been. A lot of virtue signalling going on. We, we love that. We love the term. It's a new-ish term in, in our dictionaries, in our lexicon, in our dialogue. And, uh, but it's a good one. Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. There's very little to like about Sadiq Khan. He's horrible, isn't he? Utterly wretched man. As far as politicians go, I never had any time for any of them. At all. Yes, I voted, uh, the last time being 2002, by the way, and I usually chose the, the least worst option. But maybe that's being a bit unfair. I did like some of the guys who hung around the Socialist Workers' Party back then, who hung around Sinn Féin back then, the Workers' Party, so I shouldn't say that. But uh, Khan is dreadful, isn't he? Londoners? Dreadful man. He said today, did Sadiq Khan, that he supports an initiative to rename Kensington Palace Gardens, to rename it Zelensky Avenue. You see, Volodymyr Zelensky is the president of Ukraine, the comedian turned president. Sadiq says, yes, I support an initiative to rename Kensington Palace Gardens Zelensky Avenue. Why would he say that? Well... To piss off the Russians. You see, Kensington Palace Gardens is where the Russian embassy is based. Let's name it Zelensky Avenue, said Khan. 
Lovely. You see, the Russians might just say, I'll tell you what then, Khan, we will see that and we will raise it. So from henceforth, from henceforth, Red Square will be renamed Sadiq Khan Takes It Up The Arse Boulevard. Which will be very, very funny if you're travelling in Russia, in Moscow. How are you doing there, comrade? Can you direct me to the Kremlin, please? Sure, no problem. Just follow the signs for Sadiq Khan Takes It Up The Arse Boulevard. Not a problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know. For those who are tempted to say that's homophobic, it's actually ironic. Because Sadiq Khan, I shouldn't have to explain this, would be someone who would regularly accuse Russia of being a pretty homophobic society. You see? So I'll say it again. Sadiq Khan takes it up the arse boulevard. That's where you'll find the Kremlin. What do you make of Roman Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea? Not for much longer. When did Roman take over Chelsea? I should know this. Was it 2002 or 2003? Was it 2001? Listen, I, I apologise. It was around about that time. Not long after he did, the club's fortunes took an upswing. And under his guidance, or partly because of his guidance and his money, it must be said, Chelsea has done very well in the last 20 or so years. The club has won... Numerous Premier League titles, it's won the Champions League twice, it's won FA Cups, it's won League Cups, it's even won World Club Championships. Chelsea Football Club was on the map, has been on the international map, and largely because of Roman Abramovich's interest in the club and him buying it. Now, as the UK government announced today, you probably know this, that he will be, has been sanctioned as part of the UK's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You are entitled to ask why. What has Roman Abramovich, can never say it, Roman Abramovich, what has he done? How has he assisted in the invasion of Ukraine? How has he sponsored or supported it? The answer is he hasn't, but that doesn't matter. It turns out he's one of seven oligarchs to be hit with sanctions, including acid freezes and travel bans. They've named some others, Igor Sechin and Oleg Deripaska. I think it's pronounced Oleg Deripaska. They have been accused of being allies of Vladimir Putin. Now, you have to remember, Vladimir Putin is the president of the Russian Federation. And he will have raised money for political campaigning over the years. I imagine a lot of people gave him money. Anyway, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, speaking about the sanctions on Abramovich specifically, said there can be no safe havens for those who have supported the invasion. Proof? No. None asked. Importantly, none asked. Say it again. None sought. None sought by the press none offered by Boris Johnson. What does it mean? It means that Chelsea, which we not so affectionately called Chelsea back in the day, they can no longer sell tickets for games. That's going to be interesting in coming weeks. So if you're a season ticket holder, you will be able to go and buy, excuse me, you will be able to go and watch the home games. But Chelsea, like every other club, sells season tickets, but then it sells other tickets in advance for games coming down the road. They will not be able to do that anymore. Its merchandise shop will be closed. 
it will not be able to buy or sell players on the transfer market for the foreseeable future. Now, the government did say it would give a special licence to Chelsea to allow it to fulfil its fixtures, to allow it to pay its staff and to enable existing ticket holders to attend matches. Fascism? Anyone? The government? Shutting down a business? Partly. Partly. And uh, giving a, a licence so that the business can continue trading a, you know, a business that was doing quite well, admittedly, admittedly on the back of its benevolent Russian oligarch. But anyway, let's hear more on this from Sky News business presenter Ian King. Here he is today speaking to Sky's Sarah Jane Me, Ian King. Well, first of all, uh, Sarah Jane, I think it's important to stress that this doesn't necessarily mean that Chelsea Football Club will not get sold in the, at some point in the future. It can't be sold for now because it's subject to this asset freeze, but the DCMS, the Department for Culture, Media, Digital and Sport, has been making very clear that they would be prepared to uh, work with the club on a bespoke licence that would enable the sale to take place. That would be subject to various conditions. Of course, the key one of which would be that not a penny of the uh, sale proceeds would find its way to Roman Abramovich. So. But he owns the club, though. So the, 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 the Department for Culture, Media and Sports says Chelsea can be sold, but Roman Abramovich won't get the money. Now, Chelsea might go for a billion, it might go for 1.5 billion, it might go for 2 billion. Where's the money going to go? The club belongs to Roman Abramovich. Who has the right to say... We've taken your your football club, we will oversee the sale of it, and you don't get any money from the sale of it. And why? Well, because we say that you're a friend of Russian President Vladimir Putin. I had to think about that for a second. It went right out of my head. This is um, tyranny writ large, isn't it? Fascism? So that is the key point to be made there, that the sale remains possible at some point in in the future. More from Ian King. However, in the short term, I think there are real question marks over how Chelsea functions as a business. It's being allowed, as you say, to uh, to pay its wages right now. It will be allowed to uh, run its match day, uh, re- regular match day costs capped at half a million pounds. It's also uh, had its overseas travel capped, its travel to away games capped at some £20,000, although uh, it has been suggested that uh, the club has paid up front for the rest of the season its expected travel costs. But it's also going to face a short, a drop in uh, some matchday revenues because no new tickets can be sold. It will only be, uh, only people who have tickets already and existing season ticket holders will be able to attend their games. There will be some matchday catering allowed, but no merchandise sales will be allowed either. So, they will- so so a lot of people are going to be out of pocket, including hundreds of people who work for Chelsea Football Club. These will be people living in London. They will be British people mostly. And they're going to be hit hard by this, by the UK government's decision to seize property belonging to a private businessman and to limit the trading capabilities of that particular company in business Uh, It's going to hurt people, you know, people who work around match day and work around the club during the week.
Right. There will be limits on the amount of money that Chelsea Football Club can bring in. And I think that does raise concerns over how it's going to meet its costs because we don't know how much cash there is within the club. The latest accounts published just after Christmas only went up to uh, the end of June last year. The company uh, at that point made a loss. The club made a loss of £145 million in that financial year. It was clearly being bankrolled on a day-to-day basis by Roman Abramovich. It has. It's been bankrolled by Roman Abramovich for many, many, many years. There came a time in the noughties when billionaires, some billionaires, began to get bored of massive yachts, bored of competing with one another around yachts. I can say this with some degree of certainty because when my better half and I lived pretty close to Marbella in Spain for, you know, for long enough, and and also further down the coast, further west along the Costa del Sol, we met some wealthy people. Uh, some very, very wealthy people. In fact, one time, I think he's dead now, I sat around a table with uh, Mark Rich, would you believe? Yes, I wasn't a guest of his, but but I was there. Exceptionally wealthy people. And they used to ha- play a game of one-upmanship with one another around yachts, strangely. And then they got an interest in football clubs. Yachts became boring, let's buy football clubs. So... It mightn't have been a great thing that that Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea. It's probably not a great thing that Sheikh Mansour owns Manchester City and that Qataris own other football clubs. But 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 the fact is, right, open market, right, free market capitalism, they could do that. And they did do it. And what Abramovich did was, was uh, to be fair to him, threw himself right in to Chelsea and has bankrolled the club now for the best part of 20 years. And seemingly loves it. But not anymore. That was Ian King. Chelsea supporters are pretty worried. Is this the biggest story of the day? No, it isn't. The Russians have been accused of bombing a hospital, a maternity ward and a children's ward. We'll come to that in a moment and we'll probably get into that, uh, Tony Gosling and myself, shortly. But this is a big story. It's a very, very big story. Let's hear Nadine Dory speaking of the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, the woman who heads that department is Nadine Dory. Here she is speaking today. Look, since nine o'clock this morning and since last night, we've been focused, my officials and I, on ensuring that Chelsea can still play, that the entire league is not damaged, that the fans are protected. That's been our focus. That conversation is for moving forward. But at the moment, for us, our focus since nine o'clock this morning has been on protecting Chelsea players and the fans and the National League. Protecting the players, the fans and the league from what exactly? Again, another gormless, useless muppet of a reporter was standing in front of Dory's. He had her all by himself, guy with a Scottish accent. Muppet didn't think to ask, who are you protecting uh, them from? What are you protecting them from, these football fans and these clubs exactly? But he didn't. He cannot benefit from revenue from the club and he cannot benefit from the sale of the club. Why? Why can't he? Abramovich has links to Putin. What links exactly does he have to Putin? This, this is basic journalism 101 now. He was, he was mounting a barbaric and evil attack right. against the people of Ukraine. Now he might be, Putin might be mounting a barbaric and evil attack against the people of Ukraine, Ms. Dorries, but what has that got to do with Roman Abramovich in London or on his yacht off the coast of Spain or wherever he spends his time? How has it got anything to do with him? This government, we in this department, stand with the people of Ukraine. Right. He could have asked any of those questions. He doesn't. And as I've said, I'm afraid sanctions have consequences. Abramovich's actions 
have consequences too. What actions? Again, he should jump in now and say which particular actions are you referring to? We've known about Roman Abramovich's links to Putin for some time. That this guy's a BBC reporter now with this ridiculous Scottish accent. We've known about Abramovich's links to Putin for some time. That's his follow-up. The Treasury document today spelled out one of the reasons he was being sanctioned was that he was close to Vladimir Putin. That's not new, so why has this taken so long? Because Jesus Christ, huh? Because we needed the evidence. You need evidence to prove the links of an individual. What, ev what evidence and what sort of links? Did he give money to Putin's election campaigns over the years? Does it work like that in Russia? I I'm very embarrassed to say that I don't know. Does it work like that? Do politicians campaign in the same way they campaign here? I presume they do. Do they raise funds in the same way they do here and in Ireland? If they do, did Abramovich give them a few bob over the years? Right? What's that got to do with uh, any bombing campaign in Ukraine? Anyone? To Putin. That's not easy to get hold of. There wasn't evidence to link Abramovich but to Putin. The Foreign Office have done a fantastic job the foreign getting office. that evidence as quickly as they have. The Foreign Office. And acting as quickly as they have. Today, Abramovich has been sanctioned. Our job here, my job, is to ensure that Chelsea football can continue to play, that we protect the National League and we protect the fans. Protect the league. From what? Anyway, that was today. So this is grand larceny. I, I wrote about this today because this really pissed me off. As much as anything. I am pissed off that we're being played like fiddles, people like you and me, while people are being murdered in Ukraine by the Russian military. You know, and, and the Ukrainian soldiers will be doing murdering of their own and it's all going on. And I don't believe that this is all, all to do with the NATO moving further and further east from the time the Berlin Wall came down. We're being played here. That does anger me and piss me off. Not, not any more than this does, but, but this is tyranny. This is gangsterism. This is where a government can decide at the stroke of a pen to seize the property of anyone it chooses based on tenuous, not even tenuous, based on spurious evidence with their tenuous links, with their Chinese whispers. Oh, he's got links to the government, does he? Let's take his football club then. It might be worth £2 billion. Let's freeze his bank accounts here in the UK. Let's sell the club that he owns, lock stock, by the way, and, well, we'll keep the money. Is that what will happen? Will they keep the money? Will they put it in a trust? Will they for Chelsea Football Club? Hmm. And if you imagine a cashless society, I know this is an old chestnut, but it bears repeating every day of the week and twice on Sunday, where the money is digital and it is controlled by a central bank which controls the rules, it'll happen to you. So you might not feel too sorry for multi-billionaire Roman Abramovich. And you should, because he's a human being just like you are. He might have his faults just like you do, and like I do, but he's a human being. If they do it to him, they'll do it to you. They'll do it to me next year, the year after. Medical misinformation, your account's frozen. You, ha you, you have offensive views, harmful views, on gender ideology. Uh, we'll freeze your account. And just like Roman, you won't be given a chance to defend yourself or to face your accusers. God, no. No chance. Wow. It's the Richie Allen Show. It's Thursday, the 10th of March, 2022. I'm going to leave Ukraine there I, I, for the moment because Tony's going to get into it. But, but I've got to mention, obviously, there is a claim. There has been a claim. It happened yesterday, yesterday afternoon, that the Russian military bombed a hospital deliberately in Mariupol, or Mariupol. 
and they bombed a maternity ward and a children's ward and that three or four people died and many more were injured. We saw a video of people being taken out of a uh, building that looked like a hospital and they were on stretchers. It looks very bad. Now, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, he said that this is bollocks. He said that we told the United Nations Security Council a few days ago that the hospital was pretty much empty and that it had, it had been commandeered by local forces. That's what he says. He says civilians were being used as human shields. Now, that sounds like a cliché to me. That sounds like propaganda to me. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it sounds like it is. But everything we're seeing on UK television today about that attack also looks like propaganda as well. But ultimately, will we ever know? The independent media says it's a staged event with crisis actors. But the independent media offers no proof whatsoever to substantiate such claims. So what's happening? I don't know whether it's true or not. I'll ask Tony Gosling for his opinion shortly, is what I'll do. Let's turn to something completely different for a moment, because this is interesting as well. You'll know that Yvette Cooper is the Shadow Foreign Secretary. So she's had a lot to say about Ukraine of late. We'll leave her Ukraine opinions to one side for the moment. Um, She became the second Labour Party Shadow Cabinet Minister to shit herself, literally, this week, when she was asked to define woman. Woman. She was appearing on Times Radio, and three times she was asked to spell out a definition for woman. This was yesterday. Why? Well, because on Tuesday, which was International Women's Day, the author J.K. Rowling criticised the Labour Party, saying that Labour wouldn't be able to define International Women's Day. I think she made some joke, J.K. Rowling or Rowling, about Labour would probably call it International Persons Day or something like that. Uh, Whatever, right? Okay. So yesterday, Yvette Cooper was asked about Woman. She was speaking to Stig Abel on Times Radio, and we can hear a little bit of it right now. Um, J.K. Rowling yesterday was talking about International Women's Day and said that the Labour Party would call it We Who Must Not Be Named Day. This came after Annalise Dodds, the Shadow Minister for Women, struggled to define what a woman is on the radio. Are you comfortable defining what a woman is? Of course, it's International Women's Day. We've always been celebrating International Women's Day. And, you know, I had a really exciting moment yesterday. I I did this book of um, women's speeches from throughout history called She Speaks. And um, they put it up on lights in Leicester Square. That was my huge moment for yesterday for celebrating International Women's Day. So, I don't know. I think people get themselves down rabbit holes on this one. I just think let's just celebrate International Women's Day and amazing women all over the country, amazing women all over the world, but also challenge inequalities and say what it is we need to be doing for the future. But to do that, you know, you've got a book about it. You presumably can say, yeah, I'm very confident what a woman is. Yeah, but it's very, I don't know, it's just whether we get into rabbit holes on this. Why are we all kind of getting ourselves tangled up? Well, I think it's because a lot of people listening would say, well, I know what a woman is, it's really straightforward. And then it feels that politicians start to get themselves into, into rabbit holes about this. Yeah, as you can see, I'm avoiding going down a rabbit hole because I just think this is pointless. <laughs> I think we've had a great celebration of okay. International Women's Day. I think there's still all kinds of inequalities. I think we still see problems around violence against women. and Yeah, so she segued off into violence against women and she got away with it. Three times she was asked. Now, earlier in the week, Cooper's pal Annalise Dodds, who's a minister 
for Women and Equalities. Excuse me, she isn't. She's Shadow Minister for Women and Equalities. She's in opposition, of course. So Annalise Dodds appeared on the BBC's Women's Hour and she was asked to define woman. I won't play the audio. She said, and I quote, I think it does depend what the context is, surely. You know, there are people who have decided that they have to make that transition because they live as a woman, they want to be defined as a woman. That's what she said word for word. Bear it in mind. This is fascinating. Oh, I'm so glad I was watching BBC Parliament Channel today. You boring bastard, Richie. I tell you, I know how to live. BBC Parliament I was watching on the BBC. Why? Why was I watching it? Well, because I knew that something might come up. I had a feeling, you see, that something might come up. And sure enough, it did. There was an International Women's Day debate in the Commons today. Apparently, they hold one every year around about this time to discuss what came up when talking about women this week. What are the pressing issues for women? Is there anything on the statute books? Are there any new bills coming up? What do we need to be talking about? So keep in mind what Annalise Dodds said, the Shadow Minister for Women and Equalities. She says, I think it depends what the context is. There are people who have decided that they have to make that transition. They live as a woman, they want to be defined as a woman. Right. Sir Bernard Jenkin, Conservative MP, took to his feet in the International Women's Day debate today and this is what he had to say. Listen up. All violence against women is nearly all committed by men. But there is a new and growing category of violence against women committed by people who call themselves women but are biologically male. We should always respond positively to people with gender dis- gender dis- genuine gender dysphoria and I deliver this speech with kindness in my heart. But the 2003 Sexual Offences Act defines rape as when a person, and I quote from the Act, a person intentionally penetrates the vagina, anus or mouth of another person with his penis without consent. Now, between 2012 and 2018, the Crown Prosecution Service reports over 436 cases of rape recorded as committed by women. The penis is a male organ, so these rapes are committed by men presenting themselves as women. And imagine those rapes have been recorded as having been perpetrated by women when they weren't, they were men in drag. But officially, it was female-on-female rape. Imagine. Bastions of feminism, and I hear one on the other side of the house, who highlight this risk, and others like Germaine Greer, Professor Kathleen Stock, Professor Joe Phoenix, journalists like Suzanne Moore, are bullied online and even hounded out of their jobs because they talk about this. But we as legislators, we must be clear and courageous about what a man is and what a woman is. Today's interim report from the Independent Review of Gender Identity Services for Children and Young People by Dr Hilary Cass notes the rapid increase in the number of adolescent girls presenting with gender distress. It says, and I quote, at present we have the least information for the largest group of patients, birth registered females first presenting in early teen years. Mr Deputy Speaker, it is essential we understand why we are witnessing this historically unprecedented number of young girls who are finding puberty so difficult to navigate. 
It is a scientific fact that our biological sex is immutable. As Professor Lord Winston said on BBC Question Time, and I quote, I will say this categorically, that you cannot change your sex. Your sex actually is there in every single cell in your body. The responsibility for clarity, therefore, starts with us as legislators. We have to be clear about what words mean in our legislation, and astonishingly, some of us are reluctant to be clear. A woman is an adult female human. Yes, good man. Who does he mean when he says some of us are reluctant to be clear in the definition of women? He wouldn't be talking about Annalise Dodds, would he? who said it depends on what the context is. He wouldn't be mentioning her now, would he? Only this week, oh. the Honourable Lady for Oxford East, who is in her place, uh, was asked to define a woman on the media. And she was unable or unwilling to give a clear answer. Of course, I give way to the Honourable Lady. So he gives way because, as he said this, spitting feathers with a face like a bulldog chewing a wasp, and I do mean that, Annalise Dodds leapt to her feet, absolutely livid. Now, everything he said was true. What did she say? Thank you very much, Mr Deputy Speaker. I would like to ask the Honourable Member for evidence of the statement he has just made. I would like him to provide a transcript of my comments, any quote he can find from anywhere that would indicate that at any point I have not being clear about what a woman is. It's quite easy for me, given that I am a woman. Wow. Right? So she put the ball right back in Bernard Jenkins' court. Where's the evidence that I wasn't clear in spelling out a definition of what it is to be a woman? I am one. Well, he came back. I can promise the Honourable Lady that she did not answer the question when she was asked. And... Okay, I give way again. She leaps to her feet again, furious. He said, listen, I can promise you, you didn't answer the question when you were asked on Women's Hour, she says. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. I'm afraid the Honourable Member appears perhaps not to have followed the evidence about what I have stated. Perhaps he may have consulted social media. She's boiling now. Rather than looking at what I stated, I hope he will withdraw the comment he just made. Thank you. Um, If I have misled the House by um, misrepresenting the Honourable Lady, I absolutely apologise for doing so. Um, He's just been asked to give way from his left. We'll give way to my Honourable Friend in a moment, but I I will check the facts. And I will set the record straight if it is necessary for me to do so. I go away to my honourable friend. He gives way to Danny Kruger. Danny Kruger is a Tory MP. As Annalise Dodds was lying through her pearly teeth, Danny Kruger was looking up the exact quote on his dog and bone. And he has this to say. So I've just looked up the quote from the honourable lady, and it might well be that she can clarify this because she was trying to give, to, to, to explain... Uh, situa- the, the, the Labour Party's official definition, but she was asked what her definition of uh, a woman is, and she said that, with respect, it does depend what the context is, surely. So she wasn't giving a clear personal definition, but perhaps she's able to now. She said, 
I think it does depend what the context is, surely. You know there are people who have decided that they have to make that transition because they live as a woman, they want to be defined as a woman. That's what she said on Monday on BBC Women's Hour. She's just been called out. I, 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 I will give way to her if she will give a clear she definition. Can't, um, this is she can't wait to get back up. Jen, Jenkins says, I will give way to you if you can give us a clear definition of what a woman is. It's been a really well-natured debate and it might be useful if we just move on. And the Deputy Speaker decides to end this by, to save Annalise Dodds effectively by saying, let's just move on. Let's not move on. Let her define what it is a woman is. Speaker, there have been others representing the opposition front bench who have said things like, oh, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. And indeed, the right honourable leader of the opposition said on Ma that the phrase, only women have a cervix, and I quote, he said, is something that shouldn't be said. It is not right, unquote. He did. Keir Starmer said that to Andrew Marr before Marr scarpered to LBC. He said that only women have a cervix is not right and shouldn't be said. He did say that. This is a strange way to stand up for women's rights. It kind of is. Let's get the last bit of this. The government must reply to this debate with clear definitions of man and woman, as enshrined in the Equality Act 2010. It must commit to preventing biological men, whatever identity they claim, and with whatever sincerity they claim that identity, from gaining access to women-only safe spaces. If not, the government is failing to protect women. I will give way to the Honourable Lady again. She just can't stay still. Annalise Dodds jumps up again. What does she have to say this time? Thank you. I'm grateful to the Deputy Speaker. Is the Right Honourable Member aware that I in fact referred in my remarks to the Equality Act, which makes that provision for single-sex spaces, that I have done so repeatedly. It appears that he was not aware of that. I have no problem with criticism when it's on the basis of what I have done, but I do with respect have a problem with criticism on the basis of things I have not done, particularly, if I may say, during this debate. Listen, you daft bint. It doesn't matter if when speaking to BBC Women's Air you happened to reference the Equalities Act when you were asked to give a clear definition of what your personal, your personal definition is of what it is to be a woman. You said it depends on the context. And you referenced men who want to live as, as women. You're just another useless, lazy, wretched, thick, totally fucking worthless politician, aren't you? What did Jenkin have to say? Uh, talking about the Honourable Lady at that particular point, but she's put on record what she feels, and maybe when she sums up the debate, what she said, OK, but maybe when she replies to this debate, she will give us a definition of what she thinks a woman is. Good man. Put it on the record, what you think a woman is, and then come back to me. Bernard Jenkin, I, th- I found that very interesting today. On BBC Parliament, they must have had two viewers this afternoon. I was, I was one of them. And this is interesting, before we move on and, and get Tony on the programme, came across this today. British people prefer to use emojis rather than express their feelings with others or to others in a face-to-face setting. This might not seem much of a, of a story, but it is. When you think about where we're going with tech, right, with transhumanism, with tech addiction, with mobile phone addiction, all of the things we've learned in recent years, how when children use smartphones and when children use tablets 
to, to browse the internet and to correspond with people, we can see physiological changes happening under MRI scans in their brains. It's changing people and people's habits. So Samsung did a, did a survey that found that almost 9 in 10 people in Britain preferred to use emojis to, or GIFs or gifts to express their emotions rather than talking with people in a personal setting, you know, in the room kind of a thing. It found 87% of people also found it easier to show emotions with visual aids such as emojis and memes. On average, apparently, Britons send four gifts a day with happiness and love the most likely emotion they try to express. There are apparently 10 billion GIFs in circulation. Did you realise that? If you're a Twitter or Facebook user and you use a GIF from time to time to to punctuate a post, there are billions, <laughs> 10 billion GIFs in circulation. But uh, they quoted the, the, the Samsung study was um, featured Professor Vivian Evans. And she said that smartphones have changed human interactions immeasurably. She said emotions and feelings can now be conveyed instantly to others in a powerful visual. She said since the advent of the smartphone, uh, no, no, hang on, excuse me. She said gifts, memes and emojis are the language of the internet and have become the bedrock of popular culture, fundamentally transforming how we communicate with people on a daily basis. And you have to imagine it isn't a stretch to imagine is that when the metaverse is fully up and running, there might come a point in the future, there might come a point when meeting people in the flesh will be a thing of the past. It might be unthinkable. I don't know what you think. On any of those stories, go to richieallen.co.uk. That's my website, top of the page. Comment live. Please, comment live. Comment live. It's the Richie Allen Show, live from Salford, with me, Richie Allen. This is the Commodores, back with Tony Gosling shortly. Commodores, what's it called again? Machine Gun, that's the one, nearly forgot there. It's 20 minutes to 6 o'clock, it's the Richie Allen Show. Live from Salford, a stone's throw from Media City, UK. It really is. I run around there sometimes and I shake my fist. I'm a bit of a coward. Someone said to me before, why don't you run into the buildings and make a big scene? I've never been that sort of a person. I can make a scene, all right, but not like that. So I run past the BBC and ITV and I just shake my fist. Tony Gosling is a terrific guy. He's an author, a broadcaster, uh, probably the man who does most of the work for the Not the BCFM Politics show, which airs every Friday at five o'clock UK time. He's also one of my oldest pals in the media, even though we've never met face to face, which is kind of strange, isn't it? Welcome back to the programme, our very own Tony Gosling. How are you doing, T? Well, welcome to the world of Zoom, eh? Where all our relationships are in the metaverse, Richie. (laughs) One of these days we must have a pint together. But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's interesting, the, uh, the you sitting right next to these massive conglomerates with their multi billions of pounds flowing through them every day and their employees that are sitting there more concerned about their mortgage than they are about actually doing journalism. And, and that's the main problem, I think, in the mainstream press, is that, uh, as I've seen in my journalistic lifetime, which is started in the late 80s, late 1980s, and working for four years in the BBC as 
first as a researcher and then as a journalist, is that the, 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 the fact of the matter is many of these people are much more concerned about keeping their job, keeping their prestige, uh, nepotism. Now, I saw a tremendous amount of that. Some of the older, old, what you might call old hacks, old producers, and that's me. I'm a producer-presenter. That's what I basically do. Produce the program, present it to every Friday. But I saw some of the really old people, older people, I mean, I'm talking about middle-aged, really, who were seasoned hacks, producers, brilliant contact books, absolutely 100% dedicated to the job that they did, which was informing the public about what the rich and powerful were up to around the world, particularly in London. Uh, you know, and uh, I saw those people being elbowed out of their jobs, being being basically just put out to dry. Some of them um, being just replaced by friends of uh, the, for example, program organizer, chums. Uh, even we, well, we had some information in our newsroom that some of the people were simply getting jobs because they'd slept with the program organizer, uh, that sort of thing. So I witnessed that. And uh, what we're now seeing with your ITVs around the corner from you and the BBCs is the ultimate, I suppose, nemesis of this whole mass media is that it's been completely compromised, first through COVID and now with all this wall-to-wall Ukraine propaganda. We'll talk about Ukraine in more detail in a moment and some of the allegations made in recent days from both sides about, you know, chemical weapons, attacking hospitals. We'll get into that. Brilliant to hear from you, having gone through that, working for the greatest broadcasting organisation in the world. It's a real insight for people to hear how it used to do it right or it tried to do it right and how those people were ultimately moved aside and, and all of that leading up to what we have now, which is a strange day. Well, excuse me, the, the proper day to talk about this. We... I don't, I'm a football fan, Tony. I love the sport. And um, I'm a Manchester United fan. It's not a great time to be one, but I love the sport anyway. I watch everything. And I go to Salford around the corner, Salford City, not so much lately, but I do. Roman Abramovich, no matter what anybody might think of his money or how he came to have his money, is a private citizen that doesn't have a criminal record. We've seen something happen today. At the stroke of a pen, government can say, we believe that you're pretty pally with the president of your country. Therefore, we can seize your property, sell it off, withhold the money, freeze your bank accounts. But only if they can do that to Roman Abramovich, they can do it to anybody. Yes, they certainly can. I mean, he is, his, his crime is that he's a Russian and he's got money. Um, he's, he has been um, cancelled financially because of his points of view, his sympathies perhaps, that he's not 100% against what's going on in Ukraine now. Um, and, and this is really, this is the Magnitsky Act style um, uh, legal operation against him to close him down, to shut him down. So the Magnitsky Act were brought in in the States first. This is about eight years ago. Um, and we've got another one apparently going through the British Parliament now to make it even more stringent. The idea is that a Russian, uh, they say it's to stop organised crime, right? Well, uh, there's plenty of organised crime from the Saudis, etc., in uh, war crimes even in London, but that's not being targeted. They can just literally, at the Foreign Office uh, or, or, and the Treasury, they get together and they will just put someone's name on a list. That person is no longer allowed to operate uh, bank accounts or financially in, in the UK. 
And that's an, now a fact. Just write, literally writing someone's name. There's no legal procedures involved. You can't appeal it. Uh, and it's totally outside the law. So he is basically part of what is, I, I think now, a Russia hate campaign. You know, the uh, Two Minutes Hate in 1984 in George Orwell's book, where you, you had the uh, members of the public were allowed two minutes a day to scream and shout at uh, Vladimir, no, sorry, Emmanuel Goldstein, it was yeah, in 1984. Yeah, now it's right. Vladimir Putin. And this is just a part of that. Here's another Russian for you to hate today. And by the way, Here's your equalities policy where if you start acting in a racist manner in any way, uh, you can be sacked from your job as well. So uh, try and uh, make sense of those two contradictions. Right. I, I agree with all of that. You and I spent, um, we've, we've done, I reckon we've done probably close to 100 shows together ever since my days on the Costa del Sol. We would have talked quite a bit about the demonization of the East, the demonization of Russia and China by governments here and by the media. And we would have had a lot of common ground. And I think we still have quite a lot of common ground. Russia would have a grievance, of course, because of what has happened since the fall of the Berlin Wall. But whatever about Russia's genuine grievance about, you know, Ukraine joining NATO, which is untenable to Russia, joining the European Union, untenable uh, to, to Russia, understandably. Nothing excuses rolling, you know, military hardware into a country outside cities and shelling those cities where, you know, average men, women and children are going to die. Nothing excuses that, in my opinion. Uh, Putin is in the wrong there. How do, you, how do you respond to that? What do you think? Well, look, uh, everyone is pointing the finger at Putin, aren't they, in these uh, two-minute hate campaign things. Uh, you know, this figure of Putin, the evil one. Well, if you go back, as we pointed out on my programme last Friday, if you go back to the middle of February, Putin was trying to basically knock back decisions that have been made in the Russian parliament in Moscow, the Duma, uh, to recognise the two breakaway republics of Lugansk and Donetsk. So he was saying, hang on, hang on, guys. What you're saying here is that we are going to have to actually go and recognise these states and protect them. This is a major decision that the Russian parliament had made. And so he then kicked the decision back to the Russian parliament. And a week later, they came back with a unanimous vote. Yes, you must recognise these states. And also that means basically protect them from the Azov battalion, the Ukrainian army that is shelling these two countries. And so he was kind of put, well, I mean, the way I see it is that he's been put into a position where since 2014, uh, as people will know, there was a coup by the United States, uh, Victoria Newland and, and the European Union in Kiev, where they took over control of the country yeah. uh, through shooting some of their own supporters. And ever since then, we keep hearing this annoying thing where, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, Ukraine is a sovereign country. Ukraine is not a sovereign country. Ukraine is managed from the West. It's managed from the United States and it's managed from Brussels, but mainly the U.S. They're the people that, sit, that have, have the big um, say in there. So they have, a, they have elections, yes. But like many of our elections, all of the major candidates, like last time Zelensky, who promised to do negotiations, which he then reneged on, uh, those candidates are controlled and owned pretty much by the West. In Zelensky's case, it's the oligarch Kolomoisky who basically owns him. He funded him to get into the running and funds him now still. Now he's in power. So the idea that Ukraine has just simply 
slowly but surely drifted over to, uh, uh, you know, support of the EU, support of the United States, support of NATO. It's just not the case. And the other thing is that it's not being Putin's, totally Putin's choice. Obviously, he's president. He takes the rap at the end of the day. Uh, th this is something that he has been pushed into doing by the Russian parliament. And uh, the, the three demands, I think it's, if you don't mind me mentioning them, that the no, Russians made, all seem to me totally reasonable. Now, I heard the BBC yesterday on their bulletin saying, oh, the, uh, the Russians are saying this, but they weren't saying what their demands were. Yeah, well, they did half an hour before, and they did the previous day. So the bulletins on the BBC are trying to deceive you that the Russians nice. don't even know what they're doing. They do. It's very, very clear. Demand, demand number one is that, uh, that Ukraine gives at Moscow the guarantee that they're not going to join NATO. Right. Number one demand, which is reasonable when you think, think that this is 300 miles, these nuclear missiles could be from Moscow. So uh, and all the promises that were given before about that they wouldn't join NATO. So this is about basically standing up for previous promises, saying, look, you know, you promised they wouldn't join NATO. No. So that's number one. Number two is that the uh, Lugansk and Donetsk breakaway republics should be allowed to break away if they wish to fully. Uh, by Kiev. And the final one is pretty much a slam dunk anyway, which is that Crimea should be allowed to join the Russian Federation. So he's saying these three parts of the old Ukraine, you're just going to have to say goodbye to them if they want to. They can they can leave you. Can but, we go through? Uh, hang on, hang on, T. T, hang on. Can we go through those? We've uh, got loads of time because you're generously giving us more time today. Can we go through those uh, one by one? Ukrainian people, yeah. Ukrainian people might might be well entitled to say to the demand that Ukraine doesn't join NATO. They might say, well, Mr. Putin, you're proving by invading the country and by shelling towns and villages, you're, you're proving us right to want to join NATO to begin with. Because when you don't get your way and you don't like what somebody does, you just roll the tanks across the border and you shoot people. You see, they might say that, the Ukrainians. This is why we want to join well, NATO. They might say yeah, but that, you see, that would bring them into a nuclear confrontation, wouldn't it, with yes. the West? Do we want that? No, of course Do we not. want that? No. But I'm seeing it from their point of view, from the people's point of view in Ukraine. The people who might not be privy to the information that you are on the Not the BCFM Politics Show, the guests you have on. You see, we know certain things, you and I, because we've been lucky enough, well, not lucky, you're a very talented journalist, but we've met people over the years, and we, we're privy to things. But the ordinary man and woman in the street are not privy. They look upon the Russians as a big, bullying, thuggish, tyrannical next-door neighbour who's just rolled into town. And they might be saying, well, we can't wait to join NATO now, because if we do, they won't be able to do it again in the future. Back to you. Well, I understand, look, I understand your argument, but the, see, the Russians uh, have stated categorically at Christmas time that they cannot tolerate the continued pouring in of weapons by the West into Ukraine and the, what they call the militarization. Now, they said also the Nazification and that they want to denazify the place. But the main problem they've got is that there are weapons pouring into Ukraine, uh, which is really like a red rag to a ball to the Russians. So this is why I think they've just been clearly saying uh, over Christmas, they said, we want a new agreement. Now, the Americans just threw it back in their face. We're not interested in a new agreement. And they started throwing and the British and others started throwing more anti-tank weapons in there. Uh, and the Russians have just said, well, we've had enough of this. The Duma has voted and they've now acted. Now, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but they have 
got a, a sovereign right to decide how to protect their own country. And that's what we've been doing over the last 30 years. Yeah, I agree. Inching further and further towards them, really taking the mickey, Richie. We have been having colour revolutions in countries, having our people take over those countries. I would suggest that many of the um, Baltic states, uh, if they'd have been allowed to be independent, might have much preferred to be independent rather than part of NATO. Uh, so, you know, we have, we have almost the elephant in the room here is that many of these um, ex-Eastern uh, European countries that were part of the Warsaw Pact originally, they have slowly been infiltrated and taken over by Western money, Western banksters, Western politicians, Western intelligence services. And as I was chatting on Friday to Scott Ritter, who did a particularly brilliant half-hour's analysis of what's going on, again, not, not condoning what the Russians have done, but just understanding why they've done it. Not, not patting them on the back, but really pointing the finger at NATO and saying, told you so, if you carry on like this, this is bound to happen. Fair enough, uh, and you, you make a good point. You, sorry, well, T. Look, you, uh, ma- you make a very good point, too. Uh, he's, a, he's a very good guy, Scott Ritter. I've heard him a few times on your programme. And I think four or five years ago, he was on this programme, and he was brilliant. I don't know why he's not been back, but uh, I know he's a good pal of yours. He's a very good analyst. You make a good point. It's pretty rich of the UK and the United States to condemn Russia for invading a country on the basis that it needs to protect itself. Um, wars of aggression waged by this country and the United States over the years have been justified by the spurious claims that, well, we needed to invade Afghanistan, we needed to invade Iraq because there were things going on there that represented a direct threat to us. So that's, that's a brilliant point you're making. We have no... We, we don't have a leg to stand on in this country to criticise Russia for doing what it's doing. But I, I'm, not, you know, I'm not the virtue signaller here. I look at the humanitarian cost of it. You know, we have a couple of million refugees left the country already. And that's what I want to get into with you, because I'll get this with you that I won't get from any other people. We spoke very briefly today. Tony Gosling is our guest, former BBC journalist, the man behind the Not the BCFM Politics show every Friday at five from Bristol. Go to thisweek.org.uk. I know you listen to it. If you haven't before, check it out this coming Friday. You spoke to me briefly today to confirm that you could make it today. Thank God for that. And you said to me, Richie, all of this ultimately supports or assists or benefits the Great Reset Agenda. This is important. Elaborate on that for me, please. Well, it's really, really crucial, isn't it? Because the sanctions that we're putting in, uh, on Russia, uh, I mean, we've seen already 2025 pence a litre go on to fuel over the last week or so. Um, so this is self-harming. This is punishing the British public uh, for a, a policy decision by whoever it is, the Treasury, uh, the government, Downing Street, the Americans. Uh, and it's, it's going to cause what they call, it looks like anyway, uh, it's going to start causing, as it's already started causing, what they call stagflation. Is where you start getting everything going up in price. So if fuel goes up in price, everything goes up in price. So that means all our goods and services. You know, the guy that comes around to, uh, you know, the plumber to fix the tap, he's going to have to be paying more for fuel uh, and everything that he's buying to do his job because all that has to be, um, you know, transported around the country. Uh, and so, and, and yet at the same time, we're being told, oh, you've got to pay another, uh, you know, £100 a month rent at the same time. So this is driving 
people into poverty. It means they don't have the disposable income to spend. So you get more and more uh, companies going to the wall. You get uh, less tax revenue for the government. It is an absolute economic disaster. But you know what? It's about having nothing and being happy, isn't it? Well, I don't know about the being happy part, but it certainly very much fits in with this whole Klaus Schwab thing, is that we want basically everybody to be beholden to us for every penny that they spend, and, and, and in their daily income, to be begging and scraping and bowing to the banks, oh, please give me my, my income every day. So they, they have no, ultimately, people are, being, are, are going to have to have far less ability to buy a house, they'll have to be renting it. And isn't it strange that Lloyds Bank last year put out a press release saying that they intend to be, in eight years' time, the biggest homeowner in Britain. It's because people are going to be defaulting on their mortgages. People are not going to be able to afford to buy houses. And so the idea is to drive all individuals, that's Klaus Schwab's big plan, into such poverty that they have to come to him and Prince Charles, who's his, his uh, big helper in all this, uh, and beg for everything that we have. So I think that's, that's another side to all of this, Richie. We're looking at a, a, an enormous self-harming operation financially and economically by trying to cut links with Russia. Uh, and, you know, they, they've realised that the oil and the gas are too much to stomach straight away. Uh, but then also this is another thing completely separate to all of this is there are speculators making an absolute fortune on the derivatives markets, on the futures markets. And we, what we're doing now is we're not paying the realistic price for oil or gas. We're paying the price the speculators want us to pay, which is usually far, far more, uh, because they're, they're, they're throttling back the, uh, the supply so they can increase the price. So there isn't any proper regulation, particularly of fuel prices in this country, really, the oil industry is in the driving seat. They can charge whatever they want, and their shareholders will be rubbing their hands, Richie, as will Klaus Schwab and Prince Charles, the World Economic Forum great resetters. Do you think we've we've ne- we've never kind of um, butted heads, but we've had good old debates about this over the years. When these crises come about, these crises. They they benefit one group of people. It's a tiny group of people. It's the wealthiest people on planet Earth. And I've come to believe over the years, not easily or readily, it took me some time, to believe that pretty much everything is controlled. And I believe that however sincere Vladimir Putin might be and his government in holding back NATO and protecting Russia's interests, I also believe these people take orders too from other figures and other organisations. Some we know, some we don't know. There's no bigger expert in the world, no, no, no better red man on Bilderberg and control than you. So I submitted to you that the crisis, the Ukraine crisis is real. Russia has rolled in. Refugees are on the run. The Ukrainians are digging in. But that, it's part, it's actually definitely deliberately part of that technocratic agenda, that dystopian, awful Great Reset agenda, and that it's been set in motion now, the Ukraine crisis, deliberately now at this time, right at the end of COVID, or allegedly at the end of COVID, right, just just literally days after it, and that that is deliberate, this impoverishment of people, cost, costing them their properties. It's not just the speculators 
and, and the greedy and the banksters who want the, the properties and the money, that there's something deeper and darker going on, that this is about changing our opinions, emptying our pockets, and I suppose um, acclimatising us to a new way of living. I don't know how you feel about that, if you feel it's that much controlled. What do you think? Well, well, yes and no. It certainly is control from the West. And the punishing economic situation is being imposed on us by the British government, the US government, and by the banksters, by the City of London. The hatred that they've got of the Russians. Now, I, I mean, what you're implying there is Putin is in on this in yeah, some way. I don't much, believe yeah. that. I don't believe it. And I'll tell you why I don't believe it. Because you have to go back to 1999 and look at when Putin first came to power. And how he did it. Now, he became very pally in the 1990s with the chief oligarch, Boris Berezovsky. Now, he'd been trained with about 11 other oligarchs over in Switzerland uh, to basically rape Russia. So they arrived in 1990 at the fall of the Berlin Wall. And these oligarchs were given pretty much limited finance from Switzerland and the city of London and other places, Wall Street too, to buy up and sell off all of the massive uh, state infrastructure in Russia. And they did that for over the period of the, most of the 1990s. Now, uh, Putin was quite friendly with Berezovsky, and he was number one oligarch for, for two reasons. One, well, he had the Mercedes franchise, which was extremely lucrative uh, over in uh, Russia. He also controlled NTV, which was the first ever private TV station uh, in the uh, former Soviet Union in, in Moscow. And it, it became everyone started to watch it over in Russia because it was like a symbol of perestroika. He was a very, very powerful man, a very, very wealthy man. And Berezovsky uh, was also trying to kick off the Second Chechen War because they liked to have these little terrorist things going on, like we had Northern Ireland, to train their troops, to keep everybody on the back foot where you've got a security state who, uh, you know, you've got to run to the state constantly for your security. Uh, and the second Chechen war started kicking off in 1999 with the blowing up of a massive um, uh, tower block, where a residential tower block in Moscow. Now, a couple of weeks after that, uh, the, uh, the, there was one in Ryazan, which is not another city in Russia, and they discovered the bomb before it went off. It was a massive, massive bomb which had been placed there by, guess what, FSB officers, right? That, that is the organisation that Putin had just recently been part of. I think he was, at that point, he was uh, acting prime minister. But he helped cover that up. That's what I believe. And that's why um, uh, uh, Berezovsky decided, look, he'd make a great president. Because I know that if he was to step out of line, I could just dish the dirt on him being involved in this and take him out. So he, he was put forward as the president to replace Yeltsin in uh, 2000. And he won in 2000. But the first thing Putin did when he got into power, was talk to the prosecutors in Moscow and say, what have you got on Berezovsky, quietly? And they found a whole load of stuff to do with the Aeroflot privatisation, which had been quite obviously criminal. And, um, and then, it, so Berezovsky gets a, a call from Putin. One evening, he says, I think you better get on the first plane out of Russia, and I'll sort it out over the next few days, but they're coming to arrest you in the morning. And Berezovsky shouted and screamed at Putin, what the hell do you think you're doing? Stop the prosecution now. He said, no, it's gonna, they're, gonna, they're gonna come for you in the morning because I'm your friend, I'm giving you a phone call to let you know. And I'll sort it out in the next few days. Well, Berezovsky got on a plane for London and he never came back to Russia. So what Putin had done 
was making sure that now he was president, he was going to use his power to take out the very top oligarchs that have been preying on uh, his country, raping his country for the previous 10 years. And at that point, he turned the tables on the oligarchs. Now, I think that, that, that Russia is now a, a truly independent country, that they do things their own way. And the reason they've done this now is because they have bought time over the last 20 years, Richie, to build their military up to the point where they are confident enough that they can go in soft into Ukraine, where obviously the people dying over there... It's not soft to them. It's certainly not uh, a full-scale takeover invasion, the sort of thing that we did, for example, in Iraq, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but, But so they are doing this because they have the confidence to do it and they need that buffer zone of independent countries, uh, Belarus and Ukraine, to keep us away from Moscow. Now, that's and, what and they say. Let, 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 what's happened here. And you've put that very well. And there are a lot of people listening to this who, who absolutely agree with that. I agree with most of it. Like, I, I'm not so, you know, I, I don't go for the binary choice. I know that things are complicated and nuanced. So it's not a case of either Putin is in on it or he isn't. It doesn't work like that for me. I know it doesn't work like that for you. But you talked about him going after oligarchs. In fact, this came up on a show we did a couple of years ago. It was very interesting. The problem with that theory is, is that there are still plenty of oligarchs around. There's enough of them around to be sanctioned by the UK government. Men, uh, allegedly, uh, with some friendships with Vladimir Putin, men who have billions and billions of dollars in assets and in money. And some would argue at the expense of the Russian people. So why didn't Putin deal with those oligarchs? Or did he have, you know, a preference for oligarchs depending on what they did for him, maybe? Okay, well, he just realised that there was a hierarchy amongst them and he decided to take out the top two or three. Uh, I'm not sure the other guy's name. There's another one in Switzerland. I I can't recall his name now, but he was... Again, a similar sort of situation as Berezovsky. He was told, look, you've broken the law here, 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 here and here. And these were, look, the message ultimately to these oligarchs in Russia still, and obviously the ones outside, but most importantly in Russia, is don't mess with the Kremlin. Do your gangster stuff, get on with it, do whatever you need, pay your taxes, right? And you can carry on being gangsters. Can I ask you this, T? Because he is a gangster. Of course he's a gangster, Putin. And he's worth anywhere between 600 million. Yeah. But he's also a good manager of his country. He's brought wages right up. He's he's rebuilt infrastructure all over Russia. You know, the ordinary Russian people, actually, he's... You know what? I, I, I haven't seen this reported anywhere. His popularity rating in the Russian polls has gone up 60% to 70% over the last two or three weeks. Those can be fixed, though, and you know that. People have been waiting for around eight years for something to be done about the NATO, well, not NATO, sorry, the EU and the US, Victoria Newland, National Endowment for Democracy, CIA takeover of Kiev. And that's all true. Waiting and waiting. Putin has finally acted. Hang on, T, that's all true, every bit of that. But isn't Vladimir Putin the same Vladimir Putin who attended the Young Leaders programme at the World Economic Forum? I mean, but these are real things. You know, these are... Yes, of course. Yeah. But look, he's he's KGB, he's FSB, right? So he's going along to these things. So why do you trust him then? You know what he's done, I think? Uh, uh, You know what he's been doing, I think, is he's been buying time, Richie. 
And now he's in the situation where the Russian military is confident enough to go and walk into Ukraine and say, no, NATO, you're not coming in here. We're going to get rid of all your Nazis here. We're going to get rid of all of your Stinger anti-tank missiles. And this country is going to become a buffer zone between NATO and us. And this Nazi stuff, this T. T. Tony Gosling is my guest. Great uh, journalist, former BBC journalist, presents the Not to the BCFM Politics show every Friday at five on uh, thisweek.org.uk. Find it, listen to it. Look, um, this Nazi shit... I know the president is dubious. I know he's a puppet of the United States. You, everything you said about the 2014 fake Maidan revolution, you, you were bang on. You got it spot on. But the guy's Jewish. What's this Nazi crap? He's a Jewish guy, the president. Uh, yes, good question. And that was one of the questions asked of um, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, last week uh, by one of the American journalists. Very good question. Look, the research that I've done, and, and you, you very kindly allow me to plug my book on your show, which is The Traitors of Arnhem. The research that I've done on the end game of the Second World War between the Nazis and the British mainly, the deals which were done, absolutely make, make it clear that Martin Bormann, who was Hitler's private secretary, he was the signatory on all the bank accounts of all the looted money from Europe over the Second World War period that had been squirreled away mostly in Switzerland. That, that he was brought to Britain at the end of the war and then sent over to Argentina. Now, there's two books which document this. One is Op JB by Christopher Crichton, uh, which deals with the first part, getting into Britain. And then there's, uh, there's Paul Manning's book, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, for which his publisher had his legs broken and his son was killed for writing. Paul Manning was a brilliant journalist in the United States, and this book was his swan song. But he then created 750 companies uh, in order to launder this loot from the Second World War into uh, through Sullivan and Cromwell, which was the Dulles Brothers Law Firm in New York. And that those companies, they deliberately put Jews in charge of those companies who were sympathetic to basically to the mafia uh, and the Fourth Reich in order to camouflage the fact that it was Nazi money. So there's nothing... And there's no reason why uh, you, Jews cannot be in charge of ex-Nazi organisations or even present-day Nazi organisations, I don't think. And, and I think in a way that the Nazis have kind of used him. He, you know, maybe he feels a bit embarrassed by this, but I think he should be pressed on it definitely personally himself. But I haven't seen any Western journalists do that at all. No. So it could be. That, you know, he's sympathetic with the mafia and he doesn't care if he deals with a few Nazis, Jewish or not. Let me give a plug to the Traitors of Arnhem. We, we've spoken about it before on the programme. It's an excellent read, folks. Do uh, check it out. Thisweek.org.uk, Bilderberg.org, Amazon Online. I want to... This is... This has all the hallmarks of something that's going to go on and on and on. And you're talking insurgency. You know, the West will keep funneling yeah. weapons into Ukraine. We know that foreign fighters who can't wait for a knees up, you know, these military guys from, these mercenaries from the UK, from the United States, will go in there. And what you could have is an insurgency, kind of a la Afghanistan. Now, I don't know anything about this. This is just my guess. And it might go on. And that's just going to be dreadful for prices and the cost of living here in this country, isn't it? If it does happen like that. Well, look, uh, you know, our uh, leaders have not been managing the economy very well. 
They, in fact, they've been, I think, deliberately destroying the economy through quantitative easing. They've been making sure that uh, the property prices stay high. Share prices are artificially pumped up through this QE money. Uh, then we've also got the implementation of these horrific uh, congestion charge zones. They're yeah. not actually for congestion. This is the ULES in London, etc., where people are having to pay £12 to just reverse their car out onto the road and back into the drive again every day. You know, whatever it is, even if they want to go down the road for, uh, uh, you know, to buy some milk and they're, and they're disabled, they're having to pay to do this. So what's happening is our own leaders are actually causing this and creating this horrible crisis by imposing taxes on the poor. These are not the rich pay no tax. But, but you know what? The poor are starting to have to pay these all these taxes for years. So that's, I think, the reality behind this is, is that this is basically, Richie, a massive distraction. They're, they're putting yes. loads and loads of propaganda effort into saying, oh, you know, the brave Ukrainians, isn't it brilliant? Well, look, many, many Ukrainian men are basically being press ganged into fighting where they don't want to fight and die against the Russians. They'd much rather stay with their families. And, and I don't know if you've seen some of the footage of the Ukrainian military. Uh, driving into places like uh, grounds of hospitals, into grounds of schools, into big council, like well, it looked like old what you might call a council estate in, here in Britain, uh, and the people saying, "Go away, we don't want you here because you're attracting trouble and violence. If you want to go and fight the Russians, go and do it somewhere else, not in a housing estate." Uh, and so we're getting a tremendous amount of spin and propaganda. But ultimately, this is a, a, a damn great distraction away from our own leaders' complete yeah. and utter failure, number one, to manage COVID, and number two, to actually run this country in our interest. They're running it in their own in their own. Let me... personal interest. So we're looking at a disaster capitalism over here. That's what we're looking at. Uh, complete disaster. And they, they intend to make more and more money out of, oh, this doesn't work. We're going to have to privatise it. Let's sell it off to a hedge fund, you know. And we're even seeing massive amounts of land being bought up, not by family farmers, but by, you know, people who are working for these carbon offset companies, hedge funds, giving money to companies to go and buy land to plant trees. And that means that, you know, ordinary families cannot farm because they've got this massive new market in carbon offset. You know, so there's a whole load of stuff going on over here, which is completely destroying people's ability to make a living, Richie. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We've got uh, some of the most fertile... about what's going on in Ukraine. You're right, we've got the most fertile land in the world, here and in Ireland. We've got the perfect climate for it. I wrote about this recently, about the common agricultural policy, what it meant for farming. It's shocking to think you produce 52% of your own food. Isn't it amazing that when they talked about grain shortages and food shortages, you had BBC presenters like Nicky Campbell on Radio 5 Live the other morning saying that, oh, we can't start farming again. We can't just farm. It's bad for the environment. Listen, we could talk about that for a long time, but because we've got only about 10 minutes left, if you do want to say something on that, you can, of course. But I want—I also wanted to talk about... You see, you mentioned distraction, and I think you're totally right. And I think the war, while real for the people involved in it, is some sort of distraction creation. And I'm not trying to get the final word on that. I respect your opinions on it. But look, you've got Biden coming out, the US president, ordering, uh, issuing an executive order, demanding that a study is done on centralised digital currencies. I mean, Tony, th th that's where it's all going. And when cash is gone and money is completely digital, controlled by the central bank, 
well, I hate to be pessimistic because I'm not. I'm an optimist by nature. But we're finished, aren't we? We're finished if we go digital. We are. Absolutely yeah, we are finished. finished. We are finished as humanity because basically yeah. we will all be dependent on credits at some bank. There won't be anything of value that we're, we're allowed to have. We will just have some sort of digital thing maybe on our phone, God knows, implanted in us or something that tells us how many credits we're allowed to spend that day. And if we, you know, this is very much like the Chinese system, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the uh, social credit system over there. As soon as you start to misbehave, say you turn up uh, with a Russian flag in the middle of Bristol and start waving it. Oh, dear, oh, dear. You know, you will not be able to do it. This is, the, this is slavery. Let's call it what it is. This is where they are taking us. And I'm not talking about the Russians. I'm talking about our own New World Order leaders. This is what they want. They are basically run by banks. That is, the love of money drives them, nothing else. And the power that they get over other people by taking away their money. And then they say, oh, look, they can't do anything. They're going to have to beg from us now. This is about power relationships between individuals. And this is not an accident, I don't think. I think it's a, it's a very, very well thought through and orchestrated evil program. And we're looking now. I interviewed uh, for tomorrow's show. Uh, David Livingston, who I'd love to give a plug to, if you don't mind. Of course, he's someone Jesus, I've been interviewing absolutely. Over, over the last few years. And now David is a, a Canadian, um, and he's written the best book by far, because he understands it so well, on transhumanism. It's called Transhumanism, the History of a Dangerous Idea. And he understands that this is the fascism of today. This is the social Darwinism of today. These are the people who have no interest in uh, our God-given rights or anything like that. They believe that it is their right and their task to engineer humanity, to genetically engineer humans, uh, etc., uh, so that they can perfect humanity. Well, that's just one part of it, Richie. As you know, there's a lot more to transhumanism, uh, such as the, the takeover by artificial intelligence. They think artificial intelligence should be running uh, society rather than, yeah. rather than uh, human beings that are democratically elected or otherwise. Uh, but they are basically the lords of chaos. And this is where it, I think it takes a, a bit of a leap of the imagination to understand who these people are and what they're up to. And David has sort of, you know, coached me, I suppose, a bit in this over the years, is that that's, that's actually, they believe in order from chaos. So this is the old um, adage of, uh, ordo ab chaos is the Latin, yeah. which is they create. This is disaster capitalism, isn't it? Create the and chaos. And what they've been trying out in places like Libya and Iraq, places like that, where the regeneration has all been done by big Western companies, they've made an absolute fortune out of it. They now pretty much own those countries wherever they've done that. The Chinese are at it too, of course. Uh, that that disaster capitalism is now coming home. So they're creating disasters here. They're creating chaos here. So that, that uh, they can oh, their own image as the way they want to. So it's, I think, ultimately satanic. And I'm not saying that specific individuals are satanists or whatever, but I think that the, the inspiration for it is definitely evil. It's a war on God, as Catherine Austin Fitz said, but God is going to win. These people are on a hiding to nothing, Richie, and their chaos is going to uh, bite them on the bottom, shall we say. Tony, what's David Livingston, David Livingston's book titled again? What's it called? Transhumanism, the History of a Dangerous Idea. But the, the first book of his I read was called The Dying 
God. And this is a, a great title for a book because it's about the sun. This is about the uh, old pre-Christian religions and pagan religions, many of, many of which were actually not anywhere near as bad as some people say, because that's all people knew. They worshipped the sun. So the, the, uh, the, the dying God is the sun as it sets. And of course, it gets resurrected the next day. That was the old religion. And, but he's also talking about the way that God is dying today. So it's two things in the one title, really. The idea of God being crushed slowly, using things like theory of evolution, but most importantly, using television to just discredit, discredit the whole idea of God, using education. So that, for example, when I was at school, we were taught, this is in the 1980s, no, 70s, we were taught, well, uh, you know, you need to look at creation and evolution. Nowadays, the theory of evolution is not a theory, it's fact. And, and that, to me, is part of the slow crushing of God and the whole idea of that form of spirituality out of humanity. And, of course, at that point, once people have the spirituality crushed out of them, they're looking for another form of spirituality. And that's what I think uh, that will be spoon-fed to us in the future once we start getting into real chaos. Oh, we'll be told uh, we have a new form of a man-made religion, and it's much cooler than the old-fashioned, you know, Judaism, um, Islam and all that stuff, which are old fashioned anyway, they cause wars. We've got a new religion for everybody. So I think ultimately that's the satanic aim of all of this, Richie. And I will say satanic, uh, although, of course, you know, I think some people just simply jump on the bandwagon and they go along with it because it's a gravy train. There's loads of money in, in uh, agreeing with these rich and powerful people. You can make yourself an absolute fortune. And of course, there's secret societies pushing for this too. The Freemasons were, uh, you know, exposed in the 1980s big time in this country. In Britain, we had Stephen Knight and his book, The Brotherhood. Martin Short picked up on that when Stephen Knight died and republished a book three times better called Inside the Brotherhood, which exposed all the politics of Freemasonry and their involvement with the police, etc., etc. And then they made, I think it was, Martin made, I think it was a six-part ITV series all about secret societies and how they've infiltrated politics and the criminal justice system. So this isn't a fantasy. This is most definitely out there. And this is one of the reasons I like David Livingston so much is that he sees this as a sort of, a, a, a basically the, the thing that the historians have missed. They've missed out on the secret society's uh, influence over history uh, and particularly on Freemasonry and the importance of that in the Western world today. Just a quick... Um by the way, you'll be able to hear Tony's interview with David Livingston tomorrow, five o'clock Fridays, thisweek.org.uk, not the BCFM politics show with uh, Tony Gosling and an array of brilliant guests. That's tomorrow. Um, I, I might chat with you tomorrow or the day after. You'll, you'll be busy tomorrow because I wouldn't mind uh, chatting with David myself and, and promoting Can his Can I book. just say one thing about David? Is He's pointed out there is this group of fascists called the Accelerationists. Now, they are very, they keep, these guys keep their heads down, right? But they are de most definitely out there, philosophy departments. They're basically mostly followers of Nietzsche, the philosopher Nietzsche, who was Hitler's favorite philosopher, of course. And uh, that, their idea is they want to accelerate Armageddon. So, so they, want to, they want as much chaos as possible. You know, so that is, if you're seeing around you inexplicable chaos, there are people out there who want it. We're I know, it. you know, some friends of mine were saying recently, well, no one wants a war. No, no, well, you're wrong. Some people do want a war. And actually, there are people out there who make a fortune out of war, particularly if they're supplying both sides with weapons. And then they're, 
coming back after the war has been won for the bill. Uh, you know, there are people out there that, that make money out of war of course. and that want war. Smedley Butler, war is a racket. They, they, need to be, they need to be properly examined and looked at. I mean, I've heard people going on about the Sabatean Frankists and all these various. No, the Pinay Circle is a far-right fascist international and the accelerationists are almost like the operational arm of them. They're out there making sure that you know, terrorist attacks against Muslims, this sort of thing. Uh, what's his name? The um, uh, Brenton Tarrant, the Christchurch mosque massacre guy. He was one of these. He's, he had accelerationism in his um, uh, manifesto that he, that he uh, published uh, when he killed those 55 or so Muslims a couple of years ago in Christchurch. There are connections all around these terrorists. I mean, we saw also, by the way, Richard, did you see in Pakistan when Imran Khan came out and he refused to, he abstained in the vote against Russia. That's right. Uh, and yeah. the United Nations. Then suddenly there's a massive bomb. Uh, 50, yes. 50 or so Muslims killed in a bomb attack in Peshawar. What a coincidence, T. And by the way, by the way, one of the, one a government minister whose name escapes me, was on Sky yesterday, and he was he was proposing that aid money that was due to be given to India is diverted to Ukraine, and the reason for that was was because the Indian government won't denounce Vladimir Putin. It's absolutely incredible because they won't say, "Yeah, Vladimir Putin is a bad man. We disagree with him. Let's hold some aid money back," which ties in with that bomb. And yes, yes, chaos. Wow. Yeah, yeah they, thanks they, for bringing they, that up. I think they are. The, Lord, the lords of chaos are with us. Anyone that's read Michael Moorcock, uh, as I did as a teenager, these, this, he was you know, writing about something which was actually quite, I think, I mean, it's, it's all kind of science fantasy stuff, really. But it's, it, at, the, at the heart of it is absolutely correct. There are people out there who get off on this whole idea of chaos. You look at, for example, look, Albert Pike, very important chap, he was uh, grandmaster of the uh, Scottish Rite in the United States back in the American Civil War. And his motto, what was it? Order ab chao. Order from chaos. That was the Scottish Rite motto. And it still is, apparently. So, you know, his idea was to create these three world wars. Now, I would say, you know, this may be something Putin is into, knows about. I have no idea. The Russians, I would have thought, have got some idea. But certainly the First World War was basically a family squabble amongst the Saxe-Coburg-Gotha family uh, between the Russian Tsar Nicholas, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm and our own king. The three of them having a basically a family argument that turned into the First World War with tens of millions of dead in trenches. And the Second World War, uh, that was also in this supposed Albert Pike letter, uh, which disappeared from the British Museum where he said, well, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have a Second World War. The main object of it is to have a massive fight between Russia and Germany, which is essentially what was at the heart of that war, as well as uh, implementing the new uh, state of Israel, uh, which is a kind of Templar idea from the, the Crusades. Uh, and then the Third World War would be fought between uh, the nihilists, he calls it, which are basically the Zionists, these are people who are using the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith, for their own ends, uh, and, and Islam. And this, I think, is the key to understanding what is happening now and may, may well happen in the future. When I have no idea. But, you know, this tension between Israel and Iran is very important. Look at Prince Charles. He has positioned himself with an honorary degree in Islam from Cairo University 
as was pointed out by one of my guests recently, as well as apparently, according to Israeli TV and newspapers, he is in the line of David. So he's also positioning himself to be a Zionist messiah. So he's positioned himself to be the perfect peacemaker in the coming World War Three if it breaks out in the Middle East. Now, this is the sort of cynical thing I would expect from the Saxe-Coburg Gophers, having started the First World War as well, Richie. Catch up with Tony Gosling tomorrow, Friday, at 5 o'clock in Bristol. Go to thisweek.org.uk, check out Bilderberg.org as well, and find Tony's books on those websites. He mentioned The Traders of Arnhem. He was very kind enough to send it to me. I can recommend it highly. It's a terrific read. It's absolutely fascinating. Would make an amazing screenplay, Tony. So it would. It's it would. Ab- yeah, absolutely right. brilliant. But yeah, yeah, the other books, people may prefer the other book, which is, uh, it, it's called The Siege of Heaven Reader, which is really just a, an anthology of stuff I've taken from about 350 years uh, looking at secret government, the occult, Freemasonry, things like Winston Churchill, the groups that he was involved in. The, uh, there was something called The Other Club, for example, during the Second World War where all political persuasions uh, met secretly in central London. Uh, this is the fascists sitting down with Winston, having a little chat, you know, Mosley, people like this, uh, uh, quietly, very discreetly, right the way through the Second World War, which very many people don't, don't know yes, about. Don't and that, know. Um, was, that was revealed by his chauffeur in his, in his biography, when he uh, published his biography after Churchill died. So, you know, there's all sorts in that. The Siege of Heaven Reader is much more of an anthology but the uh, Traders of Arnhem book looks very directly at these deals done between the Brits, uh, in specifically Desmond Morton, who was Churchill's private secretary, uh, and Martin Borman, who was Hitler's private I secretary. Recommend people take, I recommend people get a copy of it. Listen, uh, thanks for coming on today and giving us uh, more time than normal. It's been uh, brilliant to get your thoughts on everything that's been going on. Five o'clock tomorrow, Friday, every Friday. Uh, sounds like a great show tomorrow, it always is. Looking forward to hearing David Livingston. Uh, thanks again, T. Have a brilliant weekend, and I, I know we'll talk again real soon. Well, but just one quickie is that I didn't really answer your question about how long is this thing going to go on in Ukraine. I think, I think you're right. I think what will happen is NATO will get the special forces in there. There's already a load of mercenaries being poured in there, and they're going to make it as much of a killing zone as they possibly can for the Russian army. But ultimately, Scott Ritter said to me, this is what the Russians do best. They will not last. As soon as they start trying to do irregular activities, ambushes and stuff on the Russian army, the Russians will take them out. So I would suggest uh, this may go on and on, actually, um, and it may even turn into a third world war, Richie. So that's the thing that bothers me most. Let's hope not. Godspeed, T. Thanks again for today. Tony Gosling, live on the line from Bristol, the great city of Bristol. Uh, Thisweek.org.uk, the politics show, not the BCFM politics show, tomorrow at five, and that's every Friday. Check him out. Top man is Tony Gosling. The time here is at 27 and a half minutes to seven o'clock. It's your Richie Allen show, and I'm live in Salford. You're listening to your Richie Allen show on richieallen.co.uk. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen show now at richieallen.co.uk. Duran Duran, 
ordinary world there's nothing ordinary about it 23 minutes to 7 o'clock Thursday the uh, the 10th of March 2022 you well you are Spiro's been in touch that's activistpost.com Spiro Skouras YouTube too he says Richie the US has stated that they are concerned that Russia may gain control of research labs not to be confused as a biowarfare lab in Ukraine. Could they be setting the stage for the next bio-false flag? That's an excellent point Spiro makes there, my pal Spiro Skouras. It's a really good point. You probably will be aware that the Russian government has, uh, has claimed that it found evidence of biowarfare laboratories in Ukraine with the Pentagon's fingerprints all over them. The United States says, well, that's just a load of old bollocks. Uh, the US says, uh, Jen Psaki, she's a dreadful wench, isn't she, Jen Psaki? The ginger bird? <laughs> bird. Who says bird anymore when referring to a woman? The ginger woman, the gingerbread woman who acts as the White House press secretary these days. She says it's nonsense and that the Russians are going to deploy chemical weapons inside Ukraine. Yes, good stuff, Spiro. Very interesting. Thank you for your comments, by the way. There are many of them. I'm going to read a few out right now. Any plans for the weekend, have you? Do you want to share them with me? Just to kind of change direction just a little bit. I, I don't know. Here's another question for you. Rhetorical? Serious? I don't know. Are we fucked, are we? Are we? Is, is it like... I don't know. Is it inevitable that there's a pretty dark period coming for humanity? I suppose I should, I should ask, are we fucked? But for, for a while. You know, not permanently. But could the next decade or two be difficult decades? Might the resistance emerge out of free children that are born underground, like Edgar Friendly in Demolition Man? Are we going to be absolutely screwed for 30 or 40 years and then, you know, some resistance will emerge from some cave somewhere to take back the world? What do you think? Do you think we're screwed? Or... Does hope spring eternal? Speaking of Jen Psaki, Patricia says, I just saw Psaki said that Russia is planning that chemical attack in Ukraine. Interesting, considering that there are allegedly American-provided chemical and biological weapons facilities on the border of Russia in Ukraine, says Patricia, which Spiro was alluding to. Excellent stuff, Patricia. Lavrov made a legitimate comment. When... The US claimed that a country 10,000 kilometres away had chemical weapons and was a threat to the United States. Did anyone ask why they invaded that country? It's very good. And don't forget, chemical weapons were deployed in Iraq by the United States military. I remember many years ago, one of my regular guests was Robert Fisk of The Independent and other parishes. A lovely fella, Robert. Very straight-laced guy. Not much humour in the interviews I did with him. That's not now in any way to criticise him, because I loved Robert Fisk as a writer. 
wonderful writer and he used to come on the radio with me in Spain and he wrote three incredibly important articles for The Independent. Not The Guardian. I'm not getting this wrong. Am I so late in the week? The Independent. The Independent, of course. I was right the first time. And Robert wrote these amazing three articles about the use of depleted uranium in Fallujah in Iraq. See, they carpet-bombed Fallujah, the coalition of the woeful, the coalition of the wankers. They called themselves the coalition of the willing. They carpet-bombed to the Stone Age Fallujah. And not long after they did that, well, babies began to be born with the most heart-wrenching deformities. Babies born with arms missing and legs missing. One child born, I think, with the third arm growing out of its shoulder. All these things. For the United States to be talking about the deployment of, of chemical weapons, well, it's a joke, really. It's, it's a sick joke. And Robert Fisk was brilliant. He wrote those articles. I'll tell you who else was brilliant. Was Chris Busby, the, the expert in radiation, non-ionising radiation, who has been a guest on my programmes for many years too. Chris Busby was on the ground in Fallujah. So for the United States to talk about chemical weapons, and of course Iraq isn't the only place they deployed such disgusting things, depleted uranium. They get away with these things, you know. The families of, of the babies that were born with these dreadful, life-limiting deformities, they've got no recourse. There's nobody for them to go to. I suppose they, they hope that people will, will continue to talk about these things. I suppose they hope that their children will never be forgotten. I'll never forget them. I'll never forget the photographs in the independent articles. The ones that illustrated Robert Fisk's amazing writing. What a guy Robert um, was, is. Is he still alive, Robert? I hope he is. Yeah. There you are now. The time is uh, 16 and a half minutes to the top of the hour. Angela says this, and this is important. I can't always listen to who you have on the show, Richie, because it can be too much for me. But I appreciate you. Uh, you're our friend on the airwaves. Now, that's nice. Th thanks for that compliment. I don't need it. That's not what I wanted to draw attention to. I wanted to draw attention to what she said about I can't always listen. We often say this at the end of the week. You do. We do need to take a break from this stuff. It's hard going, really. And it can be really... It can be soul-destroying talking about these things. I mean, I've just asked the question, are we fucked? And it was probably a stupid question at a stupid time because it might, you, you know, it might bring you down a bit. I don't want to bring you down, Jesus. No, I don't want to bring you down. But I'm just wondering, does it occur to you that it doesn't kind of matter what we do, that the odds are insurmountable? I sh should probably answer my own question. I say it to Jean Ann Crowley often, but usually with the laughing emojis to go back to the article earlier on about how we're using emojis rather than expressing our emotions one to one. But I do say to Jean Ann on occasion that we're fucked, but accompanied by laughing symbols.
I don't know is the answer. I I think during the height of the COVID scam, round about late 2020, and I see people running around abusing people without masks, when I see people queuing up for the jabs, at that time, particularly late 2020, when I was in a bit of a, uh, I was in a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a fog myself mentally, I thought, this is this is tough, this. But now I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I maybe I hang on to the idea that because they are overplaying their hand in some areas at the moment, maybe there is a red line. Maybe something could happen. Maybe they could they could move a chess piece in some direction to cause something to happen. You know, and maybe that would be the catalyst for people in even greater numbers to say enough is enough. So I didn't want to be depressing by asking that question. In fact, it was kind of tongue in cheek, you know. You know, the I do believe that if we allow them to replace cash completely, if, if cash is obliterated, if it's confined to the dustbin of history and digital currency is all that's left and it is the only method of payment. Well, at that stage, yes, I wrote about this yesterday. That sound you hear behind you, that's the bolting of the prison door. It's vital. That doesn't happen. Somebody wrote to me today and said, thanks for always standing up against Bitcoin over the years. I didn't stand up against Bitcoin. In fact, that lady's name is Marie and she's in Cork. How are you doing, Marie? She said, Richie, you took some flack some years ago because people thought that you were some sort of government agent because you talked down Bitcoin. But what I did was, I don't understand blockchain, I don't understand Bitcoin, how it works. But what I felt from the beginning was that, well, cashless is terrible. And I'm not convinced, this is what I said at the beginning, Bitcoin years ago. I said, I'm not convinced that those who mine Bitcoin or those who, you know, understand Bitcoin, I said, I don't think they really understand that all the government really needs to do, even if these guys think that, thinks that Bitcoin is untouchable, all the government needs to do is to say, well, Bitcoin is verboten. Here's the, 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 the legitimate CDC or CB, Central Bank Digital Currency, CBDC. Here's the legitimate one, and this is the one you've got to use. And all other payments or payment systems are null and void. All other denominations, all other currencies, null and void. And I saw this at the beginning. And I also saw, or at least I believed, that Bitcoin and other things like Bitcoin were basically Trojan horses to accustom people to the idea of these technologies so that the government could come in at some stage in the future and say, right, here we are now, we've looked into it. Like Biden with the executive order the other day. Uh, I'm ordering the, the, the government to look into it. Give me a break. They're way beyond the stage of looking into it. It's ready to go. And will there be a big financial collapse preceding the pushing of the button to launch the digital currency. I don't know. I don't know. But it 
would make sense on some level, wouldn't it? Anywho, ahoy hoy, as they say. Right, thanks for so many of uh, your messages. I'll read a couple more and then uh, we're running out of time rapidly today anyway. Rapidly running out of time today. My website's a bit slow from time to time. It's usually because of the volume of traffic on it uh, at certain time periods. You will you will forgive me for, the, for that, I hope. Okay, back to the comments. Then the way to comment on the show is to go to richieallen.co.uk and it is comment live on the menu bar. Yes, I'm being told on email Ireland are playing England in the rugby at Twickenham on Saturday afternoon. Will you be watching, Richie? I suppose I will be watching. I like a bit of Six Nations Rugby Union. I probably will. Steve says, guess who will win the Eurovision Song Contest this year? You can see it now. A sweet-faced cherub singing from a dusty basement. (laughs) Every now and then furtively looking about. Uh, Zelensky and the whole Ukraine thing is pure theatre for the cabal. Time to step up my prepping, says Steve. It might be theatre presented to us by the cabal, Steve. It might well be. But it'll be very real for the people under the shelling. I, I like to keep that in mind because it is. You know, it is happening. Chris says apparently the Ukrainian refugees are largely unjabbed. Only 30% of the country. So spreading them around the world, what's the betting on the Ukrainian variant appearing next, says Chris? Tell you what, Chris, don't give them ideas, man. That's interesting, yeah. 30% of the country jabbed. So refugees entering Poland. Apparently Poland has got a million and a half Ukrainians at the moment, and they will head west and north, no doubt some of them. These are real people, by the way. We must remember that. Uh, Scared people, miserable and depressed people who didn't imagine a couple of weeks ago that they'd be leaving their homes. It's not good, this, you know. Whether Putin is in on it or not, none of it is good, really. That's interesting, Chris, the Ukrainian variant. Jesus. Yeah. Lucy says we have to face facts and face up to what is happening and what will happen. And yes, it's important to take a break. And to reiterate, she says, thanks, Richie, for the crap you watch to bring to us. It's not much of a chore, you know. Robert Fisk is deceased. And I should know, I probably did know that. Absolutely, Robert, what a great guy he was. Spent a lot of his time in Dublin, did Robert. He had an apartment in Dublin. And I would email him from, from, from Talk Radio Europe and say, any chance you've got a few minutes tonight? And he would say, Richie, I'm on deadline, so piss off. Or, Richie, I'm in uh, Iraq at the moment. Or I'm in Beirut. Or he would say, Richie, I'm at home in Dublin. I've got loads of time, so give me a ring. He was a, a great man, Robert Fisk. Not many left like him anymore. Craig says, I think we are fucked. But that's no reason to abandon hope. Yes, I don't think there's any contradiction there, actually. I kind of see it like that myself from time to time. We might be, or we are, but listen, don't go down without putting up a bit of a fight anyway. Jennifer says we need to trust in God and hold on to our faith. I believe it is a spiritual war in all aspects, and God wins in the end. Pandora says, Richie, in relation to depleted uranium... Would there be any chance you could speak to certain guests and you, and you mention a couple? 
uh, or one anyway, Pandora. I'll definitely have a look at that. When people recommend guests, I always do. Check them out. Sometimes they come on, sometimes they don't. Joe Public says, I was going to mention the depleted, ura- depleted uranium when you mentioned mentioned it yourself, Richie. Uh, thanks, Joe. You have a good memory too, my friend. Charlotte says, have the Russians been kicked off the International Space Station yet or out of the Antarctica Treaty? Or is it all just theatre? I'm guessing the latter. That's uh, Charlotte. And a number of you came on to tell me that Robert Fisk has indeed passed away. Um, I would have probably seen that. The memory's a funny thing, isn't it? Why did I not recall Robert's passing? But there you are. No disrespect meant to him, of course, or any of his family, you know. Pete's going to Valencia for the rugby. He'll be drinking Guinness, but shouting for England. Go on, Pete. And yes, Saki is a witch and a disgrace to us gingers. <laughs> Unbelievably hypocritical, all of them, says, says Pete there. Susie says it is all fear propaganda, mind control psyops. It's a hybrid war against us, our minds. It's to keep us petrified, says Susie, and our energies down. And thanks for the link, Susie. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Abdel says we're not fucked at all. It's going to be fun watching what comes next. Thank you. And Angela came back on to say she's meeting some lovely women for lunch on Saturday. Enjoy. Angela, enjoy a couple of glasses of wine or more. No harm in it. She'll go to stand in the park on Sunday and then we'll do a bit of painting. She will paint a portrait. She's got a bit of talent. She won't be painting walls. She will paint a portrait. Enjoy, Angela. Have a good day out with the girls on Saturday. That'll be fun. That's what you need every now and then. I'm in need of it. I've not had it for a long time. I'm in need of going to a game with lads few beers, bit of a chat, couple of games of pool. We need it, don't we? We need pressing the flesh. We need companionship, physical, in the flesh. None of this bullshit, sending people WhatsApp messages. We need to be in the same room as our friends. Dave asks me, Richie, did you end up taking the cold shower today? I'm not going to lie. No, I didn't. And do you know what? I didn't think of it, Dave. Did a phone in last night on prepping. It was terrific. Really enjoyed it. Ian in Cornwall uh, talked about the 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 health benefits of having cold showers. But he did say, Ian, didn't he? If my memory serves me, it didn't about Robert, God love him. But if my memory serves me, Ian said, you've got to build up to it. Jump in for a few seconds, then jump out. No, I didn't. I'm not going to lie, Dave. I'll, uh, I will try it. I will. I will. Of course I will. If I said I will, I will. Okay, that's about it for me. It's about time for me to take my leave of you. Thanks to Tony Gosling. Listen to him tomorrow. Uh, the Not the BCFM Politics Show, Bristol, 5 o'clock Fridays, thisweek.org.uk. Thanks to all my guests this week. Thanks to you for listening. I really appreciate you. If you like a few old school tunes, I don't mean dance music now, but I mean old good music with a few stories, do join me on Sunday at 10 o'clock on richieallen.co.uk for Sunday morning melodies. That's between 10 and noon. It's uh, It bears no relation to this programme. So I might meet up with you on Sunday. Until then, enjoy your weekend, take care of yourselves and one another. It's bye from the BBG. BBG.